and welcome back to the Talking Sense podcast. If you listen to episode one, you'll know that Talking Sense is a project held in conjunction with the Ashmolean Museum and is all about thinking about the senses in a museum setting in relation to objects that are permanent exhibits in the museum. In episode two, we walked you through what a workshop day looked like in the Talking Sense project. In the following podcast, you'll be hearing the recorded gallery talks, which were the culmination of the Talking Sense project. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Amélie Bonny, a DPhil candidate in the history of science. Her talk partner was Christy Calloway-Gale, a DPhil candidate in medieval and modern languages and co-producer of this podcast. Their talk was entitled The Senses and Disease, a Renaissance perfume burner and a Victorian poisonous bookcase. From Renaissance Italy to Victorian England, join Christy and Amélie to explore how a perfume burner and a toxic bookcase can help us to discover the sensory world of disease. In this episode, Amélie, whose research itself is about poisonous colours, uh, will be talking about the poisonous bookcase. My name is Emily Bonney and I'm a doctoral student in the history of science, medicine and technology at the University of Oxford, where I work on the construction of expert knowledge on toxic colours and responses to industrial hazards in France and Britain between 1830 and 1914. I'm particularly interested in the history of occupational medicine and environmental pollution and so today I'm going to talk about the Great Bookcase, a Victorian toxic piece of furniture that was built and painted between 1859 and 1862. It was commissioned by the architect and designer William Burgess, who had a keen interest in medieval furniture, and it was painted by 14 pre-Raphaelite artists, such as Dante Gabriele Zeddy, Edward Burne-Jones, Albert Moore, and others. As you can see when looking at this bookcase, Burgess wanted to turn this practical object into a real work of art of its own, a practice which was quite widespread among pre-Raphaelites and followers of the arts and crafts movement, as they wanted to make art more widely accessible. Burgess wanted the bookcase to tell a story in itself, which is why it is covered in so many paintings referring to both Christian and pagan myths, as well as depictions of flowers and animals. So, what makes this beautiful bookcase so toxic? How dangerous was it for the health of those who produced it and those who owned it? And how were health risks assessed? In order to answer these questions, we're going to try and understand how this object interacted and still interacts with the senses of sight, smell, touch, and even taste. So let's begin by thinking about our own sensory experience when first encountering the bookcase. Our eyes are immediately drawn to the bright colors and to the gilded parts, making us want to engage with the symbolism of this multitude of images, neglecting our other senses. This is partly because in Western art, the sense of sight is in general valued more than all the other senses, and we have learned to think about art mainly in visual terms. However, when looking at this bookcase, we could also wonder what it would be like to open the bookcase and what the painted wood would feel like if we touched it. Or we might wonder if the half-opened doors at the top would creak if we opened them. Or if there would be a smell of old books inside the bookcase. So in order to understand what made this bookcase a hazard to human health, we will need to think of the process of creating the object and using it as a multi-sensorial experience. Bearing this in mind, we're going to try and find out what other stories this bookcase can tell us in regards to the history of disease in Victorian Britain. 
First, I would like us to think about the materials with which this bookcase was made. If we take a close look, we can see that the structure is made with wooden panels that are held together by metal hinges that go entirely around the bookcase. But what we can see is that before being painted with these beautiful scenes that we see now, the wood was treated with white paint to form a basic coating. This wooden structure was the least valuable part of the bookcase and even collapsed in 1878 due to its average quality. So what made the great bookcase so valuable were the various paintings and gilded sections that it was adorned with afterwards. Here we have a quite colorful object that really speaks to our sense of sight and attracts our eyes with gilded parts but also red, blue and green colors. However, it is important to be aware that these colors have changed over time and this is not what the bookcase would have looked like when it was first finished. The red color in particular has become darker with age, so we can imagine that it was much brighter before chemical changes altered it. And the green color was probably also brighter and darkened with age. These colors, which seem so harmless, are precisely what made this bookcase so dangerous. So which of these colors could have been dangerous for the health of those who worked with them? Well, the answer is that there were several poisonous colors that were used to adorn this bookcase, creating a dangerous cocktail of toxic substances. Several of these pigments have been used since antiquity, but their production drastically increased at the turn of the 19th century, thanks to new production methods and larger industries. Other colors we're going to discuss had only been recently discovered by the time the great bookcase was made. The white lead coating, which we can no longer see, was used on the external sides of the bookcase. This color was well known since antiquity, but even though white lead was highly toxic, it was often used because it provided a durable coating, gave a high concealment of the underlying wood grain, and acted as a barrier to moisture. However, there was a price to pay for those producing white lead on a large scale, as it could induce symptoms ranging from abdominal pain, headaches, memory problems, to paralysis, seizures, or death. The red paint, which makes up a large part of the structure of the bookcase, is another highly toxic mixture. It is a mixture of two colors known as chrome red, which contain lead as well as vermilion or cinnabar, a pigment which contains mercury sulfide, a substance also commonly associated with the Mad Hatter's disease. Both these pigments were widely used throughout the 19th century, until they were replaced by cadmium red, a synthetic pigment, at the turn of the 20th century. Unsurprisingly, this red color could also have negative effects. It could damage the kidneys and the nervous system, or cause skin rashes. Even though the form of mercury found in this red paint was inorganic mercury, the least toxic form, it was still highly dangerous. Two other colors used here were more recent. Even though cobalt as a substance had been used since the Middle Ages, the color cobalt blue was first officially discovered and produced on a larger scale by the Frenchman Louis-Jacques Thénard in 1802. Compared with lead-based or mercury-based colors, it is more moderately toxic, but still dangerous if ingested or inhaled. Lastly, emerald green is a compound of copper acetate and arsenic which was first created in 1808 and commercialized from 1814 onwards. Poisoning symptoms in this case include nausea, vomiting, 
burning of the mouth and throat, as well as severe abdominal pains. If we now think about the sensory experience of painting this bookcase, we quickly realize that it would have involved a variety of our senses. It would have required the artists to touch the object, which means that the poisonous substances could be absorbed through the skin. Charles Thackra, a medical man writing on occupational diseases, explained in 1831 that the rubbing and grinding of paint could lead to some sort of sense deprivation as workers lost their appetite. Workers could also inhale toxic vapors through their nose, which would then affect their inner organs. There was also the danger that paint would enter in contact with their mouths or with sores if they stained their hands and failed to wash them while working. So how dangerous was the creation process of this bookcase for the artists who worked on it? Being in contact with toxic substances was of course dangerous, but in this case we had 14 different artists working on this object, using several dangerous pigments in small quantities. We can guess that these artists were of course frequently exposed to such colors as they also worked on other paintings at the same time. However, if we compare working on the great bookcase to working in a factory setting, we can still say that the situation of these 14 artists was not so bad. In a wallpaper factory that produced cheap wallpaper on a large scale, it was quite frequent for one worker to be continuously exposed to one specific toxic pigment and doing the same task all day. So we can imagine that mixing the paint might have exposed the skin of workers to the paint all day, while polishing finished emerald green wallpapers would have released a lot of dust containing arsenic in the workshop, which in several cases led to acute poisoning or even death. However, as a result of their exposure, skilled workers also gained knowledge of the risks involved in the use of these colors and attempted to develop strategies to limit exposure, such as working only limited amounts of time with certain colors and using protective gear. Now, we might also wonder if furniture which was painted with toxic pigments also affected the health of their owners. In the case of William Burgess, all we know is that he died in 1881 at the age of 53 in somewhat strange circumstances. He caught a chill in Cardiff and decided to recover in his London home, where this bookcase and several other pieces of painted furniture were located at the time. The fact that he died half paralyzed just three weeks after returning home suggests that the amount of toxic color in his house might have contributed to his early death. Other household items adorned with these colors also frequently led to poisoning and death. Small children in particular were at risk as they often licked painted toys or chewed bits of wallpaper, but adults also increasingly complained about decorative items affecting their health. This could be due to several reasons, such as pigments being poorly fixed and turning into poisonous dust. In the case of arsenic pigments, there was also a reaction in damp environments which led to the growth of a mushroom that then released toxic gases. So the last question we might ask is why did contemporaries use these dangerous colors even though they were highly toxic? Well, there are several reasons for this. First, it's likely that contemporaries wouldn't have thought that these pigments were toxic because they were also used as a medicine at the time. For example, in 1785, Thomas Fowler created Fowler's solution 
a tonic or medicine containing arsenic that was widely used to cure a variety of ailments such as asthma, chorea, and leukemia. Even though some medical men started to argue that toxic pigments could cause occupational diseases as early as the 1830s, their views were widely dismissed until the end of the century, and many argued that the workers' diseases were caused by other factors, such as alcoholism or carelessness at work. The toxicity of arsenic pigments remained a subject of debate until the 1880s, when the press started to write extensively about cases of poisoning, largely attributed to arsenical wallpapers. They increasingly popularized the use of a test to detect arsenic in wallpaper and in which arsenic could be detected due to the release of garlic-smelling gas. Another factor that explains the widespread use of some of these colors was their price. At the time, Britain had the largest copper mines in the world, Devon Great Consoles, which produced arsenic as a byproduct. So when the copper industry started to plummet in the 1860s, mine directors did their best to make byproducts profitable to compensate for their loss of capital and started encouraging the production of cheap emerald green pigments on a large scale. This color was then quickly adopted by artists as it was a shade of green that could not be obtained using natural pigments or dyes, which shows that they were willing to take risks for the sake of producing something pleasing to the eye. In the case of white lead, other white pigments such as zinc white simply did not have the same properties and were therefore shunned by artists. Finally, another reason why Burgess wanted to use these specific colors was that he wanted to use the same colors as medieval masters whom he admired. For example, he regarded Luca della Robbia as a great master of the 15th century, and as he had used a form of cobalt blue, Burgess decided to use a similar color in the bookcase. So here we see that these colors were also largely created, used and purchased precisely because of the unique visual experience they created, even if there was a price to pay for it. So as a conclusion, thinking about contemporary sensory experience in creating this bookcase and using it really allows us to understand how working with dangerous pigments could affect the body in numerous ways, leading to death in the most extreme cases. Because some of the sensory experiences associated with the exposure to some toxic elements were also judged in a positive light by some medical practitioners, as we saw with Fowler's solution, the existence of occupational diseases remained a source of disputes among the medical profession, and their existence only started to be more widely acknowledged at the turn of the 20th century, when toxicity started to be gradually better understood. For further reading about this podcast and all of the podcasts in this series, please see the attached bibliographies in the show notes. Music for the show was by David Hillowitz, Moment of Truth, piano version, provided by freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was presented, edited and produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale. And me, Johnny Lawrence. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.